Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. All right, I want to welcome you back to another conversation on the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. I'm Kevin Witham. I'm here alone uh, today. Tina Bruner could not be with us Um so she'll be back with us hopefully next time we're together. Wish Tina well. She's uh, last podcast. She'd taken a little tumble on a bike and may still be recuperating from that. So uh, Tina, if you're listening out there, we wish you well and God's blessings on what you're doing. Um, want to say before we introduce our guest today, uh, Common Grounds Unity has started a Patreon channel and you can support this ministry by subscribing to our Patreon channel. That's one way to do that. And on that channel, you'll find additional conversations, videos, essays, special events, and much more uh, from guests that we have here on Common Grounds Unity. So you can go to the Patreon channel. You'll see the link in the show notes, and you'll be able to subscribe to that. And you'll really be blessed by the additional conversations and articles and many other resources that are there. I want to introduce our guest today. I've known Stan Granberg for a number of years. And he is our guest today. Let me give him a formal introduction before we start talking about his uh, recent book that has come out. He's much more than an author. Uh, Dr. Stan Granberg is a founding board member for the Heritage 21 Foundation. He served in ministry as a youth minister, missionary to Kenya, and a Bible professor at Lubbock Christian University and Cascade College. Stan was the founding director of Kairos Church Planting identifying, training, and supporting new churches across the United States. And we're having Stan on the program today. All those would be interesting things to talk about, but we're here to talk with him in this particular podcast about his newest book, which is entitled Empty Church, Why People Don't Come and What to Do About It. You can purchase that book on Amazon or your favorite bookseller. You can also get it at the Heritage 21 Foundation website as well. I believe it is a, a great tool, a needed tool, and a timely book uh, that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Stan and Gina, by the way, they live in the Seattle metro area. Stan, welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. We're so glad you're here with us today. How are things? And are you in Washington? I am. I mean, I'm in Seattle, Lake Forest Park in the northern part of Seattle. Is it cool up there or warm? It's, you know, it's, it's nice. Going to be in the uh, high 70s today, which is pretty great. Oh, that's beautiful weather. That That's almost like where I'm at right now. It's almost, yeah, almost San Diego weather. There we go. There we go. Stan, for our listeners um, who are, you know, across the streams of, of Stone Campbell Restoration Churches, uh, many I know would, would know you already, but introduce yourself in a way that shares a little bit about your life and your faith journey. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, I grew up in the Seattle-Tacoma area of Washington State. 
and then went to Harding University and found out that I lived in a mission field. I hadn't known that up to that time, uh, but they, they made that known to me and uh, met my wife at Harding University, Gina. We married in 1978 and then moved to Memphis where I went to Harding Graduate School of Religion at the time. And uh, it was she and God who uh, had different plans than I had. She wanted to go to Africa and do medical missions. I was not going to go to Africa or anywhere else to do that kind of thing. And uh, God used her and a couple of other people to uh, get me ready. And when the knock came on our door, literally to uh, go to Kenya, do mission work, I was ready to go and made the decision in about, uh, about 30 seconds that that was the right thing. And that, uh, that 10 years we spent in Kenya amongst the Meru people of central Kenya, that was just foundational for my life and ministry career. And during that time, I completed a THM degree from Fuller Theological Seminary and School of World Mission. We came back from Kenya in 1983, and I started teaching at Lubbock Christian University, and then had the opportunity to go to Cascade College in Portland, Oregon, which was in its second year at the time. It had been Columbia Christian a college and they had closed their doors and Oklahoma Christian came in and took it on and started Cascade College. And that's probably where it really struck me. I was kind of a pioneering type of a guy. I mean, kind of makes it obvious to go to Kenya and start something up there. But here was a chance again to uh, to do something new and to be on the ground floor of something. So we moved to Portland, Oregon. And I taught at uh, Cascade until 2004. I completed my uh, PhD at the Oxford Center for Mission Studies in Oxford, England, where I studied African church leadership. And uh, leadership studies have been a specialty and an interest uh, of mine for, for most of my career. So I, I, th I thought I was set. You know, you, you got on the track and in our particular fellowship to be a teacher at a Christian university is kind of, you know, the, uh, that's where you want to be. And I was a, a tenured faculty member, had my PhD, kind of thought I was settled in. And in 2004, I met Roger Gibson at the start of a new church in Beaverton, Oregon, the west side of Portland. And uh, I was just kind of fascinated. In fact, you know, when I first met Roger was at uh, one of the last unity meetings that was held in Portland. And he started talking about this church planting thing here in the States, domestic church planting. As he talked through what they were doing, I thought that makes so much sense. That, that just that that is the way that should be done. And so I went to the start of Our Place Christian Church in Beaverton and got to, to really meet Roger and get to know him. He, he gave us an invitation to come down to Vacaville, California, where he was working with the Northern California Evangelistic Association of the Christian Churches. And Gina and I ended up taking five couples to one of their church planter training camps. 
we were there un, unbeknownst to us. There was also a an acquaintance friend, uh, Jimmy Adcox and Larry Deal from the mm-hmm. Southwest Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And we had no idea they were going to be there, but they were. And I'd known both of them just you know by reputation some through the years, and had uh, you know kind of kept my eye on them. And as it turned out, in 2005, I resigned from my faculty position to start Kairos Church Planting Support. Uh, had gone in July to Southwest in Jonesboro, met with their elders. Uh, one of my mentors through the years, Philip Slate, who had been the dean of Harding Graduate School of Religion, he told me when I was talking to him for advice, he said, well, think big, Stan. And I was thinking, think big. What's thinking? So I was going to ask them for $250,000. I thought that was a big ask to help start Kairos Church Planting. I left that night with a million dollar commitment from them to help our fellowship wake up and become part of the of the game plan to start a new generation of churches in the United States. And they were very faithful to that commitment. So from 2004 to 2019, I, uh, I worked with Kairos Church Planting, planting new churches across the, the country. And then another surprise along the way while starting those new churches, uh, we saw a growing need to help declining churches. And in the uh, April of 2016, uh, I had gotten in touch with uh, a handful of other men and uh, with their coming on on board, we created the Heritage 21 Foundation. And uh, I st- I work very part-time for them and uh, then more full-time volunteer on the board of Heritage 21, where we are helping churches that are uh, mostly in the later part of their life cycles to figure out how to make the best uh, best decisions they can for their future. And so that's what takes me here now to Seattle. I'm uh, mostly retired, enjoying being with family and enjoying uh, my continued relationships with uh, Heritage 21 Foundation. So Kairos continues. You were the Kairos continues, director there. Kairos continues, yes. And, doing and very there. well under uh, Ron Clark is there new executive director. Yeah, no, Ron. And and so that, that work is enduring and church is being planted. And now you're also helping churches to either renew, rejuvenate, or repurpose, I think is the terms, yes. um, through Heritage 21. And our listeners can learn more about Heritage 21 by looking up their website. A lot of good resources there. Uh, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about that in, in, a, in the future. But you recently wrote a book called Empty Church, uh, Why People Don't Come and What to Do About It. And uh, you know, I think so many of our church leaders have been struggling with the decline, not only in many churches in our fellowships, but also um, just the decline in Christianity in general. Coming out of COVID, when, when you wrote that book, you know, that all just picked up steam, so to say, if you can use a positive term for mm-hmm. decline. But we, we saw how uh, much more desperate things became in many places with churches a quarter full. Um, walk us through, if you would, some of the major points of discussion in the empty church. 
Well, uh, Empty Church is kind of one of those uh, culmination type books. Uh, I was trying to, to bring in my experiences and what I'd learned through uh, Kairos and starting new churches, uh, what I had learned in consulting with churches along the way. Uh, and then, as you said, Kevin, COVID was an accelerant. Yeah, it was like gas poured on the fire. And so it speeded up everything. We probably jumped 10 to 15 years in the future uh, mm-hmm. with COVID and, and culturally and what's happening with churches in the spiritual climate of America. Uh, I don't think we're seeing anything new come from COVID, but the speed with which it uh connected and engaged was, was so rapid. So you know, I really wanted to do something very practical. Uh, so many church leaders, you know, they are, they're vocational, uh, they're doing other jobs, they have their own families, and they, they need something very practical, very easy to engage. And so that's what Empty Church is. It's something that, uh, that I feel like gives simple, very actionable tools, a timeline, a uh, uh, some phases to go through. And I've worked with a number of churches to develop that. And uh, so I, I hope it'll be a, it's a very good help. The basis of it is the idea of the life cycle of churches. I, I've been surprised at how many people have said they hadn't ever considered that church had a life cycle. But just like uh, people do, churches have a life cycle. I've been a bit surprised that the normal life cycle of a church is about the length of the normal lifespan of a human being. But when you think of it, that uh, that makes a lot of sense for that because churches are designed. I mean, you know, I'm using this in that small church category, you know, that local congregation. Churches are designed to meet the needs and the times and the situation of the people that started them. Mm-hmm. And they don't change. I think all of us know that quite Churches don't change very readily, very easily, or very quickly. And uh, so, that, you know, you go that first generation and then that second generation of church members and it's dynamic usually and active and exciting and people are raising their families together and they're doing life together in, in a great way. That, that's how the church I was raised in the Lakeview mm-hmm. Church of Christ in Tacoma, Washington. They were this fantastic experience. When we started, they were only a two-year-old church had maybe 60 people in it. And uh, by the time uh, I left to uh, go to Kenya, they were up around 420. And it's a dynamic, fantastic church. But as uh, they get to the third generation, the grandchildren generation, uh, the grandchildren just don't tend to go to those churches. And uh, that's where churches get more towards the end of their life cycle. So unless a church revisions itself periodically and becomes something new, and that's a, a challenging concept to think of becoming a new church. But unless they do that at least every 20 years, 25 years, 
then they're going to cross over the top of the life cycle, come down the declining side, and eventually get to the point where they're going to to close, to die, would be the word that we would use. And uh, so we've got to figure out how do we both accept the fact of a life cycle, because every church, I mean, there's no New Testament church that I know of that's still living. Mm-hmm. They all came to an end, but they had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and we have a powerful dynamic of of Christianity in the world today to come to that. So that's kind of the, the overview. It's based on four sections. First is, how did we get to this place? So what are the cultural conditions that have changed or accelerated around us? And then uh, talk about the life cycle in, in part two and do it, have some assessment tools at that point. Then part three is, uh, so what do we do if we feel like that we can uh, uh, revitalize uh, ourselves? How do we do that? And uh, so I talk about evangelizing and serving and discipling. And then the, the last part is, well, what if it all doesn't does it work? How do you how do you end gracefully and faithfully? Those are those parts that uh, Empty Church covers. Hey, everybody! We'll be right back with the rest of this episode. We want to take a moment to thank Mission Alive and Central Christian College of the Bible for sponsoring this episode. Mission Alive equips leaders to start innovative communities of faith focused on transforming marginal communities. They provide church planning training, apprenticeships, consulting, and discipleship cohorts, among other resources. They can also train you to be a nationally accredited coach through Catalyze Coach Training. This 28-week credential will equip you to impact and transform your church organization leadership and ministry. Learn how God can transform your life and ministry by going to missionalive.org. That's missionalive.org or emailing them at contact at missionalive.org. And Central Christian College of the Bible has low-cost, innovative, and flexible master's programs in ministry, leadership, and preaching that they want you to know about. These two-year programs are designed to be one-third online, one-third on campus, and one-third supervised ministry by an expert in your interest area. The mentoring courses can offer credit in your local ministry. Graduates like Dr. Don Mahardy and Jonathan Curtis are impacting the kingdom in deeper, more meaningful ways because of their education at CCCB. So find out more at cccb.edu front slash graduate. That's cccb.edu front slash graduate. And in, in the book, you talk about um, churches, once they get to that particular place in the life cycle, you know, as you're on that steep side of the bell curve on the right, headed down, that very few churches, I think you said 5% are able to kind of re-envision and, and renew. So some do, some do succeed, but it's mm-hmm. a small number. You've had a lot of experience in churches. I, I, I know your the, the book is based both on experience and academic research. You, you you do both those kinds of works. You're a practitioner as well as a as a uh, scholar and and researcher. When you've seen churches that have been able to 
it's succeed, you know, that 5%, what are some of the, the factors and things you see in that church that makes that possible? It's a good question, Kevin. Uh, I think the, the first is that they have to start soon enough. And, and that's, that's kind of that, that gray area. What's soon enough? It's before your leadership begins to dissolve. It's before you lose so many people that you simply don't have the people, time, financial resources. Uh, you, you have to start bef- while you still have people who have the energy levels to do the work. And when what happens with churches as they age is that the, you know, the parents were there at the start, perhaps, or soon after the start, it's their church, and it's led by a, a gerontocracy of, of elders. And uh, the, the kids have gone there, now they're grandkids, but now the grandkids are going somewhere else, and the parents tend to go somewhere else, and pretty soon you have that shrinking pool of older people and as we age, we just don't have the same limberness to us that we did. We don't have the same energy levels. And there's there's some point in there where uh, I'm thinking of a, a church in Portland, Oregon, the Peninsula Church of Christ, which was, we'd call it the flagship church of Portland. It was one of the very first, and there's at least four other churches that it spawned out of itself. But it got to a point where one of their elders and I were talking. He said, Stan, we just have so many extra grace required people that we have to take care of physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He said, it has worn us out. And they were closed within nine months of he and I having that conversation. I was teaching at the time, so I was a little bit more of a friend and spectator than a participant with them. But but they'd crossed that line where it took more energy than they had to give even to keep the church up and operating. So it became a, a kind of a pull the plug to give us relief from that situation. So you have to start early enough where you still have good leaders, you still have people with, with resources to use, and can can put in two or three years of good hard work to move into that renewal. So I'd say that's that's just number one. Yeah. Number two is you have to get over the fear factor. And the older churches get, you know, the older people get. We get uh, we get more fearful just as we age, and churches do too. And that fearfulness comes from they don't want to upset their friends and their family, the people that they've done church with their whole life. That's one fear factor. They don't want to do something that upsets the generation that founded them. So they become protectors of the past rather than promoters of the future. And then third, we for us in our particular restoration stream, we have that theological sense of we have to do it right, that there's one right way, that one biblical New Testament way. And if we don't do it that particular way, anything else is wrong. Mm-hmm. And those things get us frozen, paralyzed into place. And so we have to 
overcome those things. And that's theologically, I think God, you know, he is a creative God. He's a God who engages in newness of, of things and revitalizes things over and over. So we have that theological resource. I, I learned it, I put it in this way in, in Kenya that our restoration heritage at our best, we are a people who love the word of God. We want to engage the world of God, and we do that with the creativity of God. Mm. And when those three things are there, it, it's it's kind of like lighting a stick of dynamite up. Things things just um, amazing things happen. So we've got the theological resources that can get us out of that, but that paralysis of fear is very very strong. Mm. And I think the third piece is, is that as churches get older, they become more um, protective castles. And so that protectiveness really comes into play. But if we're going to revitalize, or we call it revision, which is where you started this, this question, Kevin, the idea of a church needs to revision every 20 years or so, remake itself. The only way that happens is with new people. And so in a family, we, we revitalize our family through marriages and uh, through new kids coming in. Well, we've got to have new people coming in. And so churches need to engage new people. We call them God's lost people. That's you know our language. They're, they're God's lost people. But they are not yet believers. But those are the people that God will use to bring that dynamic uh, sense of future into our midst. And so we, we have to learn not to fear them, but to see them as God's resource for us, as well as his mission for us. And I'd say those three things together become a very powerful mix uh, that can help churches revision and revitalize. Hey, folks, this is a great conversation with our guest, and we don't want you to miss any of it. So we want to break here and bring you the rest of this conversation next week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to like and support this ministry. In the meantime, reach out to someone outside of your family of churches and grab a cup of coffee. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless, and remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.